Amen. Good morning. My name is Ben, one of the pastors here at Hope. Good job following context clues and sitting down. I, for years I've said, hey, you can be seated, and then I look up and everybody's already down. So I just need to cut it from the notes. Great job. Uh, hello, my name is Ben, one of the pastors. Today we're going to be in the book of Nehemiah. And, you know, no shame if you got to go to Table of Contents to find that one. It's a smaller book, Old Testament, towards the end of the Old Testament. But find your way, if you will, well, into the histories in the Old Testament. Find their way, if you will, to Nehemiah chapter 1. We're going through a series on the book of Nehemiah, so we're going to be there for a minute. It'd be good to put a bookmark there. You can find it again, maybe. We, we're talking about a, a story from the Old Testament where God, he takes a guy, he's got like a champion that he uses to come and to fix a big problem. And the reason that I want us to to go through it is because I want us to see the kind of God that would do something like this, but I also want us to see the kind of pattern that God has for his people and what we're supposed to do. But if we're going to do, we got to be, you got to figure out the why, you got to understand this at maybe a heart level before we just start kind of stacking up what kind of things we might do. So to get there, we're going to start in the beginning of Nehemiah chapter 1. If you have a copy of the scriptures, glad you can turn your way there. If not, we'll have those words on the screen, you know, as long as they don't flicker or whatever. And then we'd love to give you a copy of the scriptures on your way out in a modern English translation. So, if you want to get to know somebody, I don't know, um, there's varying levels of success with things called icebreaker questions. If you've heard of icebreaker questions, of course you have. You've been in an awkward situation with a group of people where you're expected to kind of, you know, present something of who you are, but not too much. Uh, icebreaker questions are sensitive because you want to get to know somebody, but you don't want to go too far. You got to leave some ice, you know, especially on the first couple times you meet somebody. One of the funniest and maybe I think more heartfelt uh, of the icebreaker questions that are out there, there was a pastor that I was with on a mission trip when I was very young, uh, all the way on the east side of Africa. We were above Madagascar in this little island chain. We were there playing basketball, and basketball was our way of getting this one missionary guy in to meet uh, these leaders of Islamic communities that were closed off. They didn't want to hear from the outside world, but they were willing to let us come play basketball and have basketball camps or whatever, and then he would get to know these guys, and he was a PhD in agriculture, so he could produce different like resources for them that might help them in ways they would be excited, yada, yada, yada. The whole point of the whole trip, though, is for him to get to know them and them to get to know him. What's tricky is while he was a very excellent person and all this stuff he did, he was kind of a nervy guy and he wasn't really very good at, you know, interacting with people, which is a problem if the whole mission trip is for him to interact with this person, right? And so the other pastor, was there, I wasn't a pastor at the time, but the pastor that was there, he was saying... We need to give him some icebreaker questions to really facilitate uh, between this kind of nervy missionary guy and the, like, staid Islamic community leader. <laughs> and he was saying, you should tell him to ask, when's the last time you cried and why? <laughs> now, if I paint the picture well, hopefully you understand how inappropriate that would be. I thought it was hilarious, though, as well, as just a funny thing to get things going, as though he would say, thank you for allowing me in your country. So when's the last time you cried and why? Like, we understand that that's a pretty intense question. But why? Because to talk about something like that is to tell somebody 
Not just a weakness, not just a vulnerability, but it's to tell somebody you, who you are, by what you love. And maybe what of what you love is imperiled. It's a tricky question. It's a deep question. I encourage you, if you know somebody well enough, or if you don't know them at all, one of those two extremes to ask that question, very funny, very helpful, because biblically, God portrays His heart to us. And if we're to be His people, we don't just follow some sort of abstract set of rules or or like life guidelines right? It's not like Christianity is just this code that you put on your forehead and do as well as you can with. No, Christianity is a relationship with the living God, and He's inviting us not merely to learn His ways, but to learn Him, to have His heart, which is to weep where He weeps. And the book of Nehemiah, which we talked about last week, it gets really exciting It's death-defying. It's success. 52 days, they build this massive wall despite all this opposition. And this guy, Nehemiah, he's got a lot of the qualities that we value as Americans. He's like, he's single-minded. He's able to stand up with conviction despite all the rabble. He's kind of singular. It's not really this team with Nehemiah. It's kind of like just him. We get excited about that. And yet the book begins where we have to begin. The book begins in tears. And to see that, I want you to see what hopefully he saw and and start to understand something of the heart of God behind it. So Nehemiah chapter 1, it starts this way. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Listen, let's just as a church agree that we're not going to make fun of each other for how we say these words. Um, Just go for it. Say it quick. Keep moving. Um, I don't know that there's really a, you know, right way to do it. So just have fun with it. Hakaliah, sure. Now it happened in the month of Shizlev, sure. In the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. Quick recap. The people of God are in this place, the city of God. They're in the kingdom of God that God has promised and then delivered. And then because of their disobedience, God has allowed that kingdom to fall. And it resolves, dissolves in this deportation where God allows a foreign nation to come and to take the people of Israel and put them in captivity in this place, Babylon. By the time we get to Nehemiah, God's actually allowed those people, that captivity is over. He's allowed those people to go back and to begin rebuilding, to putting back together some of the pieces of these promises of this wonderful project of God to bless all people through the the nation of the people of Abraham. And yet, what Nehemiah is hearing, when he's asking about him, hey, he's still stuck you know, in the deportation, he's still, uh, uh, you know, he's part of that kingdom. He's not really a slave, kind of a slave. I don't know. But he's still part of the deportation, and yet he's a Jew, and he's asking about the Jewish people, and of course his heart is there. He's concerned. Verse 3, and they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. Allow your heart to kind of 
fill in the blanks poetically because we don't have cities that are built the same way. But understand that he's saying that the, the core, the basic need, necessities for what it is to be a city is, just doesn't happen. It's not existing. It's not only not there, it's rubble. They not only don't have big, proud, strong gates, the gates are burned with fire. Why? It's a symbol. They don't have any strength. They don't have any security. They don't have any honor. What's Nehemiah do? Verse 4, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Now you come to church and you expect to kind of, I don't know what you're expecting really. Maybe I shouldn't say that. But many, sometimes, often, come to church expecting some kind of a lift. Maybe you're not expecting it. You're hoping for some kind of a lift. Some kind of just like a sweet little thought that you can put in and, you know, listen to a little bit, get enough of, and then go back to whatever, and then get out of here with something encouraging. But that's not what you need. I mean, sometimes the Bible's filled with encouragement, but you live in a world that doesn't look like that. We live in a world that's hurting. So it is encouraging, even though it's hard to start here, it is encouraging to find that the Bible meets you where you are because God sees what you see. The God of the Bible isn't unstained by the world. He's unstained in the sense that he has never sinned, but he's not aloof. You know what that word means? He's not just separated and uncaring. The Bible says that God weeps and that he wept over his friend Lazarus who was dead. He doesn't just weep over Lazarus because Lazarus was sick. Jesus knew about it. He could have gone. I mean, he could have done anything. It's Jesus. He could have healed him on the spot like he did with the centurion's servant. He could have gotten there quickly. He could have walked on water, gotten there quickly, and healed him. Ah, no, it's great. Done. Whoa, ah, thank you, Jesus. Well, you're welcome, Lazarus. See you next week. Or, you know, he could have done anything he wanted. And having the ability to stop the situation, he allowed the situation, then showed up at the situation, at the tomb. Lazarus, he allows to die. Then he comes to the funeral... And yes, he knows that he is about to raise Lazarus up from the dead. He knows he has that ability. He knows he's about to do it. And yet, between could have and did, Jesus weeps. He feels it. I need to hear that because sometimes my life is really terrible. And when I stop looking at my life for like 10 seconds and look out at other people's lives, the world is really terrible. The Bible says that Jesus wept as he looked at the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. He's weeping. It's the city that kills the prophets. The people that God sends to it to give them what they need, the only thing that will help. And instead of taking that medicine, they kill him. Why is Jesus weeping? He's weeping because he sees what the world should be and he sees what the world is. 
If you were to answer me honestly about the last time you cried and why, I bet we could find those two elements. That you know what the world should be, and yet you see what it is. And with Christ, you cry. You feel it. So what do we do about it? Well, you, you actually do have to start there. You have to start with the weeping. You have to start by seeing that things are not the way that they should be, not just in your life, but more fully. That's what Nehemiah does. He doesn't just start with the people of Israel. He understands that the God of heaven is involved and the honor of the God of heaven is involved. As you go throughout the scriptures, as God's men and women see things happening to the kingdom, they don't first and foremost only consider what that means to themselves. They're always rightly concerned with what that means for the name of the Lord that they serve, the God that they are supposed to be glorifying. You see it in this guy, Joshua. He was another leader of the people of Israel well before Nehemiah. And this guy, Joshua, just experienced a defeat with the people of Israel at a very crucial time where the people of Israel are stepping out onto the stage of Canaan. They're about to take over the promised land really, finally. They experience this defeat. And in Joshua 7, 8 and 9, he says, Oh, Lord, what can I say? When Israel's turned their backs before their enemies, when they lose. For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? You see, he's concerned for his people, but he's also concerned because those people are God's people. And if they lose before the people, the gods of Baal and Molech, What does that mean for the God of Israel's name, for his glory? He feels what we should feel is that we are his. And when this world is broken, God looks out over it and he hates it and he weeps over it because he feels, he loves, and he loves you. Man, it's hard to start there, but... But we, if we're going to be like him, and if we're going to produce the the kind of fruit that the Lord wants us to produce, we've got to do it by abiding in him and having his heart with him. And his heart looks out over the world and it weeps. When's the last time you wept? And why? Oh, if you start there, then you trust that's what Nehemiah did. He, he goes to the Lord. It says in verse 5, and he said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keeps his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We've acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Now, I say trust, but there's some content that you have to trust. You know, there's Aladdin when he's looking at uh, Jasmine, and this is a Disney story if you've not heard it. The story is called Aladdin, and Aladdin is a ragamuffin. He's a street rough, and he becomes a prince because of a genie. And he has a famous line that he says to the pretty lady, who's also a princess, Jasmine, do you trust me? Now, it's a great lesson. You should show it to your children and then talk to them afterward. She shouldn't. (laughs) 
She doesn't know him. Her dad's not involved. The whole thing is, is not, she shouldn't. But she does, and at the end of the day, okay, maybe there's some redemptive in her trust, or I don't know. It's not the gospel, it's just a story. But he says, do you trust me? And dreamy eyes, you know, fill in a lot of gaps, and she gets on the carpet, and away they go. What he's saying, Nehemiah is saying, is that he does trust God, the person, the, the thing of God, not just a set of rules. He trusts God. And yet, for us, it's a little bit tricky here because there is some content we have to dig through. He's talking about a, co- a covenant, a set of commandments. And he's saying that you do have steadfast love and you hold covenant with, have steadfast, and have steadfast love with those who love you and keep your commandments. And there's a part of you, maybe a cynical part, maybe kind of just an honest part, that says, oh, there it is. Got it. Yeah, he loves you all right. He loves you if you're obedient. Keep his commandments and then he's real impressed and he's excited to love you. I know about that kind of love, that kind of performance love. Is that what the Bible's saying? Some people who love God will try and defend him in a terrible way by ripping their Bibles in half and they'll say, no, that's just the Old Testament. Hmm. Is the Old Testament so different? Let's think about it for a second. He's saying that there is something in the love of God that, that responds with obedience. And there's something about the consistent, flagrant disobedience of God that says something about whether or not you're even his servant to begin with. And I'll show you that the New Testament says the same thing. Jesus, I mean, New Testament, it begins and ends with this guy. And Jesus says on the Sermon on the Mount, as he's concluding, these are the kind of big final crashes of the symbol he wants you to remember. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, confessing that he is, will enter the kingdom of heaven. With their mouth, they're saying, Lord, Lord, and they stand before him in the judgment. And yet, even though they say that, they won't enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Okay. Do you see how this is a a passage that I would talk about? Do you see how it connects? It sounds similar, doesn't it? Keep the covenant. Keep the commandment. Those are the ones that get in. Well, listen to what he says, verse 22. And yet on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. What do we do with that? If it really is about obedience, if God really is looking for outstanding candidates to promote because you're already impressive, then why do the most impressive people stand before the Lord and Jesus say, sorry, no? If it's about what they do, why do the people who do bigger things than you and I will ever do? They stand before Jesus and he says, no. They do bigger things. He says that they cast out demons and prophesy and do many mighty works. And yet they don't get in. Why? The one criteria is, do you know him? 
Christianity is not taking obedient people and patting them on the head. Christianity is taking people who realize that they have totally disobeyed God and showing them forgiveness and love. And then responding to that love, we begin to slowly change. You do. If you don't, then we don't say, wow, you need to work harder. I mean, we'll start there maybe, but we're going to eventually look at you and say, listen, if there's no change in your life, then there's no change in your heart. I hope that we'll have the discernment to say, though your life looks very impressive, I think there might be a problem with your heart. That's what Jesus says to the Pharisees over and over and over again. Though your outside is impressive, your inside is desecrated. It's rottenness. It's dead man's bones. Oh, listen, you really got to know this. You really got to understand this. He's saying you got to know him. If you know him, you can trust him, but you got to know him. Another place later in the New Testament, 2 Thessalonians 2, finishes that chapter by saying, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Do you see the order? He takes you, he loves you, he saves you, he establishes you. And then watch as these good works come up. It's important to realize that because otherwise you're going to have the weeping where you see that the world is broken, but you're not going to turn to God to fix it because what? You're too proud. You're too gross. You don't think you need him. You don't think you're allowed to talk to him. It's the gospel that says, yes, he's holy, but yes, he's loving. Where his mercy and his judgment can meet because that's what Jesus did. The whole idea of the cross. These two things coming together at angles. The cross. Jesus is hung on this wooden gibbet because God the Holy One takes on man's sinfulness. God's righteous judgment forever put on the only one who's actually innocent. So that you and I who are broken people can be forgiven can be received. You have to see this. It's that that cross. It's where those two things come together. That's the gospel. Nehemiah didn't understand it the same way we do because he's before the time of Christ, but he did understand it as we should because he looked at God's consistent message throughout all of Scripture, which is that he is holy and that a sacrifice must be made if we are to be in covenant with him. And if we're in covenant with him... Everything else is going to be fine. He trusts. That's why he goes to the Lord to pray. He finishes his prayer, verse 8. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost part of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. He will gather you. That's what Nehemiah is doing. He's coming back to a place of trust. He is saying, we're sinful. We don't deserve anything from you. And yet, Lord, we confess that sin and we trust in the promises you've made to this point that though we are like scarlet, you can make us white as snow. Though we are scattered, even scattered all the way to the other end of heavens, you can gather us back. 
And it's all over the Bible. Psalm 107. If you have time this afternoon, this would be a great one to read to your family before dinner time, to read to yourself before you fall asleep. Psalm 107 says, we're just going to read the three verses, but read the whole thing later. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east and the west and the north and the south. He gathers us in. Nehemiah trusts in the heart of God. He trusts in the promises of God. So much so that now he's ready to work with God. The last verse in this chapter, Nehemiah says, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name, uh, delight to fear your name. Whenever you read fear your name, I think that's really helpful, so embrace it. But don't think about like, ah, fear. Think about like, oh. You ever walk on the edge of a cliff? There's awe because of the beauty, and there's a little bit of fear because don't fall off that cliff. You ever been next to a, a tiger? I have in a zoo, so it's very safe. <laughs> but you're close, and if that giant, you know, bullet, hopefully bulletproof glass or whatever wasn't there, majestic. Really? I was kind of surprised. It did a growl. You know, the bass guitar makes you feel something, a growl, like a real growl from a real tiger. Very impressive. But I don't want to be, I'm also scared of it. I'm in awe of it. Do you, I want you to hear that when you hear fear of the Lord. You're going to see it in some places where you'd rather not see it unless you understand it as it is there. You've got to delight in the awe, in the fear, in the bigness, in the goodness, in the holiness, in the severity, in the wonder of your name. And give success to your servant today, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now, I was cupbearer to the king. He's hinting there at what we'll talk about next week, which is, yeah, then you got to actually go do something. You start to have his heart, you're going to start to follow his ways. This, this follower of God isn't content to just wish there's something that's in his capacity to go for, and he's asking God to give him the grace because he's going to go for it. It may result in his death, but he's going to go for it. He says he's cupbearer to the king, and he finishes by his prayer by saying, Grant me mercy in the sight of this man. He's talking about going before the king, the king of kings, not with a capital K like God, but essentially a guy who has full life and death control over not just Nehemiah, but whole peoples, whole nations, a guy who is king over the known world. It was Nehemiah's job to be the trustworthy, poison-proof guy that would drink the wine before the king to say, okay, it's good, you can drink it. Seems like a low position, <laughs> certainly an expendable position, but it was a very trusted position. You got to trust the cupbearer. And trusted, I mean, they, he would be like almost an advisor to the king. And he's going to go before the king and he's going to ask for help. He's going to ask for mercy or be allowed to go and do help, to be relieved from some of his duties for a time. And it's a possible death sentence. It's certainly wild that he would want to go from the king's palace and the king's throne room to the dirt pile of Jerusalem that he would want to go from professional sommelier to the king, 
to take a shovel in one hand and a sword in the other, while enemies from within and without try to stop him from rebuilding something for the honor of the Lord. And yet he doesn't. He's wept, he's got the heart of the Lord, and he's seen, he trusts in the Lord. And we're going to do the same thing. Not just because we're committed, not just because we're excellent. We're going to do the same thing because this is God's pattern. This is what he does. He takes people who abide in him, and then they start to bear fruit. It happened with Nehemiah. Certainly Christ is not a man but God, and yet he stands before God praying for us, caring for us. He goes and then dies for us. We've already talked about that. We'll talk about it every day. I want to talk about it constantly. But then there are others who, after Christ, then are like Christ. You have the apostles, this guy Paul. He writes about it, and he says in Colossians 1.24, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Sounds blasphemous, doesn't it? Jesus' death wasn't enough? We're waiting on wonderful, high and mighty Paul to come and bring some affliction? No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying that he's God's servant, that he's Christ's servant, and that he's going to do what Christ has commanded. And like Christ promised in this world, you will have trouble. Like Christ promised to Paul when on the road to Emmaus, he says, Damascus, sorry, whatever it is. He's on a road, he meets Jesus, and Jesus says to the guy that's going to come and help Paul, go, no, you got to go help him, and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Because to go out in a fallen world and try and change it is going to involve suffering. And yet, as Paul finishes that chapter in Colossians, Jesus we proclaim. We warn everyone, we try to teach everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he so powerfully works within me. That's what we're going for. That's the whole point of Nehemiah. Keep coming back. And I hope you'll see week on week that, yeah, we are going to show you hard things that are going to tempt your heart to weep. And that, yeah, you know the Lord, you're going to start to feel what he feels, which involves some weeping. But it also involves coming to know him and to trust him. To see the Lord whose steadfast love endures forever. And to then, in that trust and with that passion, going out to change everything. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we're going to transition now into this time of remembrance where we have the Lord's Supper. And as we do so, Lord, I pray that we would tie all of this together, Father, that this is all done by you, through you, and to you, and for your glory. And that, Father, anything that we might do to try and bring your name and bring your solution and your love to the world, Father, it's all only ever going to happen as we understand what you've done for us and the love that you've shown us in Christ. Now as we do this symbol that you instituted in that last supper, I pray that something of, of what we're doing with our mouth, with our eyes, with our nose, with our ears, Lord, that we would understand and have our affections change, have our hearts become a little bit more like you. Please, Father, help us to take this seriously, but also to receive from it seriously. Pray these things in your son's holy name.
Amen.